You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The letter came by courier last week. I knew when I touched the envelope that it was fine stationery. I knew from the paper, the porous surface of pure cotton rag, the watermark that shone through as I held it to the light. The letter is in my bag in the overhead compartment, but I imagine the cream fibers, the feel of the engraved letterhead. Twining and Hooper, Solicitors, 11 Bedford Row, London. The courier knocked at my door, the letter and a clipboard in his hand. Yes, for my name. It's a special service, he explained. The sender requested we check ID. I showed the courier my driver's license and signed the delivery bill. He set the letter in my hands. On my kitchen counter, I pulled the plastic zipper of the express envelope. Inside, there was a smaller envelope of cream bond stock. I read the letter standing over the sink. Justin Goh was born in Los Angeles. He studied at the University of California in Berkeley and University College in London. He's lived in Paris, London, New York City, and Berlin. His new novel is The Steady Running of the Hour. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Justin, this is a fascinating novel. It feels like a full, old-fashioned kind of novel that weaves (laughs) together two very different stories at first. We have a story that unfolds in Europe and in the 1920s, and we have a story that unfolds in the present. And what eventually happens is that one character in one story starts to pursue the other story. And I thought that's a really interesting comment about the power of story over all our lives. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's strange how storytelling is this, I feel, a, a human phenomenon that completely sort of engrosses us. I, I mean, I wrote the whole book trying to make it so that that people would be interested from the first few pages. And, and you see that, that people can can read a, three pages in the beginning and, and try to finish a 500-page book just because they want to know what's going to happen. I think there's something inside of us that always wants to know what will happen next. And uh, the main character in the book, Tristan, is, is sort of pursuing the story in the same way that readers are. One of the real pleasures of this book is the, the prose. This is, feels really polished and beautifully written. When you wrote this book, did you did this all just tumble off the, the <laughs> tip of your pen, or did you find yourself writing different sections at different times and patching it all together? Uh, yeah, I wish it had come off uh, the pen that polished. Um, some of it had. I, I find that the good parts are always good and that the bad parts get take a lot of work. So in the case of the historical stuff, a lot of it did really come out the, the way it is on the page, but mainly because I spent so much time trying to capture the vocabulary and really the, the, the speech of these people who were sort of like ghosts whose letters and diaries I read. And, and so their words, hopefully a lot of it in many instances, came out pretty much the way they are on the page. But I spent a lot of time rewriting some parts that were problem parts. And um, in the process, I think I learned a lot about, about writing. One of the things about this book that makes it really fun to read is the the rich canvas of places that you visit in the book, and you've recreated them all very well, both in the present and in the past. The only way you can visit them now or see them now is either online or to go there in the present. But recreating these places in the past is a, is a different matter entirely. So talk about visiting someplace in the present 
but architecting it in prose in the past. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a mixture of sort of research and imagination, I suppose. Like like a lot of writing, if you take London for instance, well, I I went to graduate school in London and I lived there for for more than a year, and and I I go back all the time. I mean I I have lived there now, but of course, a lot of that is just you know brass plaques on on the walls of of buildings. It's not the same anymore. You have to imagine that you know that there were trams in London, which there aren't anymore. Or uh, what the taxi cabs looked like, or the clothes that people wore, and so it's just a mixture of things. It's a mixture of the sources that I found most useful were things that that gave a, a window into everyday life. So things like letters and diaries, of course, but also catalogs, for instance, the Army Navy um, Department Stores uh, catalog, which is about a thousand pages thick of 1909, is a, a wonderful resource for knowing what what very trivial things looked like. Photographs. There's newsreel footage even of the the, the funeral procession of Queen Victoria, you know, you look at these kinds of things to try to see, I would like to see what the ratio of horse carriages to taxi cabs to omnibuses was at that period, to bicycles or something like that. But then even then you're, you're thinking, okay, well, this is 15 years before and it must have changed. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of all these things. But, you know, I, I had spent so much time in Europe and I had always loved to picture these things because I was so interested in history. And finally, I had an excuse to do it in a more sort of particular, meaningful way. Now, there are two sets of characters in this novel, the characters who are in the present, trying to find out what happened to the characters in the past, and we see their stories unfold simultaneously. They weave together as one understands uh, more about the other. Uh, which set of characters came first? Um, actually, the historical characters came first. Ashley and Imogen, Ashley really came out of my interest in in the war and especially in climbing and in out of these these people who I was fascinated by why they why they wanted to do something like climbing when they had been through a war that was so much in a way like the Everest expeditions which were so grueling and yet they saw climbing as this thing that would bring real meaning to their lives and I was fascinated by that contrast so that was sort of my went my window into this world and that that got me started the actual character of Tristan Campbell who is a a young graduate in San Francisco, who was the most like me, actually developed very, very slowly. And I found it really hard to write about a character that was similar to me because I knew exactly what interested me about Ashley and Imogen because they were so different. Imogen's a 19-year-old, you know, half-Swede daughter of diplomats who likes the ballet or something. And and with someone who's so different in 1916, I I can kind of put my finger on what it is that's going to interest readers. But writing about myself, I found difficult. So the character of Tristan, who's searching for the past, actually even though his experiences were so much like mine, he he sort of enlarged over time. Talk about creating this plot that unfolds in the past, especially it feels very Dickensian with this <laughs> kind of, uh, and, and you even referenced Dickens at one point mm-hmm. in the book, a very specific and entertaining <laughs> part. I really like that, that feeling of this kind of cabinet of life stuffed with all sorts of stories. You've got war, you've got mm-hmm. mountain climbing, you've got a love story. Uh, as you architected this, did you know in in advance how you were going to do it and and how it was going to fall apart? Um, yes, I did, but I I think I had to redo it so many times. So, I think in a way, the fact that the book was so plot driven because I had never tried to write a, something so plot driven before made it easier because there was always something that had to happen in each chapter because the story switches off so in such a particular way. It, it only worked if it unfolded in a very specific way, and so I I had to plot that. You know that Ashley and Imogen were going to meet here, and that 
here Ashley was going to go to the front and here here Everest would happen and and here someone would get this telegram and it would have to be discovered in this particular way by Tristan in, in the chapter in between. And the relationship between the past and present was something, there were these little pieces that were, it was actually a big headache for both my agent and editor when we were editing the book to try to remember who knew what at what time. So in a way it was it was almost like a a mystery story. But um but yeah the 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 plot had to be take a really particular path and yet at the same time it was constantly being revised because reading it over and over I, I would sometimes get ideas and characters you know characters got filled in it, I spent six or seven years writing this book and and I would think of new things and and it, and it would get added on to I really thought the parts uh, about the war were really well done what what interested me about that was that this is not a new subject a lot of people have written about this before you know, I thought you wrote about it very well but did you feel any trepidation and and talk about your resources in creating some of those scenes which seem really uh, visceral yeah um I think you know if I honestly if I had thought that anybody was going to read the book I think I would have had a lot of trepidation about all kinds of things but I at the the time that I was actually writing this book I had no idea that it would, would ever be published and so I think that made me capable of writing these things because World War One has been written about so many times you could you could totally spook yourself by saying look the, the best stuff's already been written there's no point in doing this again but in this book I really was trying to give a sense of unfamiliarity to to things that we think we already know about so everybody knows that that the war was full of mud and trenches and everybody thinks they know what Everest looks like and and I tried to boil those things down to very specific elements so I I studied lots of the war and I, I tried to find one battle in particular that really intrigued me and I kind of recast it as this as this sort of mythical thing not as big as the battle of the Somme in in, in July but uh, a huge a huge thing for the people that were in it and it's just uh, it's a battle called Empress Redoubt and it takes place in in one of the lowest points of the war in the fall of 1916 when it was just mud and it was freezing cold and they were still attacking and they didn't know why but by trying to kind of compress it into a very specific experience of just you know, a few days or a week or, you know, just the experience of, of one platoon of men, one officer in one battle, I, I felt like I could give it more immediacy. And I tried to give that immediacy um, to let the reader in, to, to make them feel like they were really there. The, the historical parts are written in the present tense. I, I tried to capture details. I just, my, I wasn't trying to give the, the sweeping view, but the most particular exact feeling of what it felt like to be there just right at that moment. You know, what interests me is that in both the historical part and in the current day part, you're using very modern writing techniques. Mm-hmm. And it feels very modern. But when you apply that, those kind of modern techniques to the historical passages, you can take that whole thing and it just seems totally new again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess in in a way that I think all my influences for the book are pretty old because I honestly I don't I already had pretty archaic influences but once I started reading the book I writing the book I was uh, not looking at any books written after 1930 because I didn't want to confuse other people's ideas of the past with my own but of course once you start researching you realize that a lot of the things that we think of as modern have been around for a very long time um, and and I was constantly surprised by by some of the things I would discover in my research but um, like what just uh, People, the people start to seem just like us. I mean, you know, I, that's it's the greatest cliche in the book. But you, you, you realize that 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 they they were not so different. Um, even even a very great poet like Wilfred Owen, who gives the book its title, would 
you know, he was mostly worried about getting socks and chocolate. I mean, he didn't have an iPad or something, but really, like, the preoccupations of people and their everyday life, you know, for even if you're reading Virginia Woolf's diary, and she, yes, she's a very great genius, but, you know, her sort of neuroses or something begins to remind you of yourself. But I've, I was often also just surprised by strange coincidences and, and things that I would imagine the characters doing. I would just make up that, you know, Imogen happens to drink cream de cassis. And I I didn't, like, look up a detail of what, what a 19-year-old should read. And then I would read somebody mentioning drinking creme de cassis. And then I would think, okay, well, I know I haven't seen this letter before because I just saw this in the British Library and I haven't ordered this box before. But did I see it somewhere else? And so it began to feel like the research... Um, and the novel were converging, which was a good feeling. It just it didn't mean that I was doing anything magical. It just meant that, that, that the world that I was imagining was getting closer to what it hopefully it was really like. Well, talk a little bit about your research. Uh, it sounds like you went beyond just reading the histories uh, to uh, find letters and papers. Where did you find these papers and what did you read? And out of all the letters and papers that are out there, how did you choose what to read? Um. Well, I mean, it was a real kind of hodgepodge process because I didn't know what I was doing. I'd studied history in college, but this was so incredibly broad because the the topics were really esoteric. So if you take something like, let's say, mountain climbing, it was a very exciting thing to research. I, I would go to the Royal Geographical Society Archives in London and the Alpine Club, also in London, because those were the two people who were behind the Everest expeditions. And in there, say in the Geographical Society, they would have a binder, like an old binder with a type you know, typewritten on a typewriter sort of index of all the files they had. And, and you'd find equipment lists and notes on equipment by the climbers saying, you know, well, this this tent pattern wasn't very good or these gloves weren't warm enough. So then I would write down in my diary, okay, these gloves weren't warm enough. And this was the face cream they used. And so, so very technical, dry things. And then there would be a, a weather diary. And then there would be, you know, uh, instructions on uh, sending telegraphs. And so things like that, of course, they're good for details of the book, but they also give you some idea of the atmosphere. And then Related in the same archive, there would be letters. And, you know, honestly, you just read everything. I mean, you probably, your eyes start to glaze over at certain points, and then, and then they sort of perk up, and you think, you start reading letters, and, and suddenly, you, you know, you're, you're, you realize you're paying attention. You found something. Or sometimes what happens is that you weren't paying attention, and you realize later that when you get an idea while you're writing that this came out of something. So, for instance, I read about this code, and this, the poet Wilfred Owen, who was a soldier, a lot of soldiers actually used codes because they weren't allowed to say where they were. So in the book, there's there's this thing where he uses a trigger word, and the trigger word is mistletoe, to say that he's going to reveal his location in code. And then it was the first, it was the second letter of each following line. And it would be like S-O-M-M-E, meaning I'm in the sum. And he, this is how he would tell his mother where he was going. So something like that, I would read about it, but I wouldn't know that that it was important. And then later on, it would find its way into the book. So kind of a mixture of everything. And of course, you know, the other piece, aside from all the archival research, is is going to the places and and feeling what they're like. And, you know, going to the places is great because the buildings don't change and, you know, the the weather in certain places doesn't change. And and, and if you get to see a good museum exhibit, you know, sometimes I would spend hours looking at glass cases just to see, you know, what a helmet looked like or uh, what a dress looked like. You visited a lot, a lot of places to research this book, including, I believe, did you uh, visit the location of Everest itself? Yeah, I went to uh, Everest uh, Base Camp. I didn't, I didn't climb the mountain, but uh, I went to the base camp uh, on the Tibetan side, which is the same side as the 1924 expedition. So I was, 
I was at the site, you know, which is in the book where the where the climbers had their had their camp and and ate under huge mess tents and drank champagne. Yeah. Part of the difficulty of the Everest expeditions was actually just getting to Everest. So talk about creating that kind of track when it's a track that you yourself don't have to take. Right. <clears throat> I mean, this is something I was trying to recapture in the book, which is the, the feeling of remoteness and mystery to, to a mountain, which we all think of as, you know, I, I know somebody who's who's been Instagramming from Everest lately who was involved in, you know, trying to climb it. So, no, I mean, at that time, Everest had been a closed country in the initial expedition. So the, the British first started climbing it in the 1920s. And this book is really set on the third expedition in 1924. To get there, they had to first walk off the map. They literally walked off the map that they had of, of Tibet. No European had been anywhere near the mountain. And in the initial expedition, George Mallory um, and his climbers, they tried to find just how to approach the mountain. And they would look up, even once they had finally sort of figured out the approach, with with telescopes to try to imagine what kind of obstacles were waiting there. <laughs> so it, there was this feeling of mystery was something. And, of course, the remoteness was that to get there, they would first you know, go to, in this case, they would go to to a port or Liverpool or something, get on a steamer and go all the way to Bombay, which is a journey of weeks, and get on a train, go across India to Darjeeling, a hill station. And from there, they would take a narrow gauge railway and then start marching for a month through Sikkim, which was a British colonial possession, into Tibet. So in that one month trek, they had an army of porters. But it was, of course, you know, oh, quite grueling. And, and I've been to Tibet and the air is dry. And at that time, um, you know, people were prone to sickness. Actually, on the earlier trips, one of the participants died just on the walk there. So they, they tended to arrive in bad shape. And you never know. It's the same now. You don't know whether altitude sickness um, or any other disease you can get. You know, you don't know how it's going to affect you. So these climbers, because they were out there for so long and the journey was so long, might arrive there in very bad shape. And that doesn't even um, take into account the fact that weather, which is the most important thing when climbing Everest, was something that they really didn't understand in the 20s. They didn't understand the role of the monsoon in determining Everest weather. So all these things that we kind of know, you know, down to the most minute detail of when to climb the mountain, how to get there, what it's going to be like, they didn't know any of that. And so in this book, I was really trying to recapture both that mystery and and the remoteness. This novel really revolves around the great characters you create and, and the central characters, Ashley Walshingham. So talk about creating this young man. Yeah. Um, well, Ashley, uh, Ashley, I guess, was drawn not from any one person, but from the, the hundreds of people that I read about from the period. I was really interested in, in these climbers, and I was also really interested in these people whose, whose sort of upbringing had been divided by the war. So in a way, Ashley was based on George Mallory, who's the very famous 1920s Everest climber who disappeared en route to the summit in 1924, and is this very romantic figure who was involved in the Bloomsbury group and was very artistic um, and, and believed in climbing as this thing that, that changed lives and also said these you know, very enigmatic phrases. Someone once asked him, you know, why climb Everest? And he said, because it is there. And so that kind of sort of romantic, almost mystical view of, of climbing um, was really important to, to sort of starting Ashley. But I, I used a character slightly younger than Mallory. Ashley is more of the generation that came of age, you know, w- would have been about, tw- you know, he's about 20 years old in 1916. So he was just in college when, you know, the war broke out and, and became very bad. And these were the men who really got kind of thrown into the fire. So 
Ashley is not somebody who would have wanted to be in the army if the war hadn't happened. And this is typical of a lot of these people at the time. So, you know, he's he's 20 years old um, and he's expected to command 60 men and lead them into battle, even though it means death in many cases. So for him, you know, this is not something that anybody expected, partly just because up until that point, people really believed that the world was getting better. And so I was... I was trying to sort of, that's sort of the historical setting, but on a personal level, I was trying to find a way into Ashley, and I sort of found it through through his humor, which I found in a lot of these memoirs. The British had this very um, sort of black black humor about, well, especially about the war. I mean, there was nothing left to do but laugh. And so you see he has this sort of wry humor, and yet on some level it, it um, hides the fact that he's he's kind of a romantic person who really believes in climbing. And he's suddenly in the, this war and, and the one thing that he, he latches on to is Imogen because he meets Imogen six days before he's about to go to France. And Imogen is the the love of his life and one of the, the linchpins of what unfolds in the novel with regards to Tristan. And one of the things I, I liked about her was the way you gave her a lot of importance, but she's mostly kind of a, casts a shadow through the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, it's funny because Imogen, in a lot of ways, I think, is the central character in the book. She's what drives everything that happens. She's the reason that the fortune exists. It's that Ashley left it to her. Um, and you learn at the very beginning of the book that he left it to her. It, it didn't really make sense because it, of course, apparently she he hadn't seen her for 10 years. And and I think, you know, this is the role that people sometimes have in our lives, which is that, that you know, you might not be with someone that long, but but they totally change your life. And so Imogen is, is almost this force in this novel. Um, and, and I found her to be the most fascinating character because she just kept growing as the novel grew and progressed. Um, she's 19 years old when the book starts. She's half Swedish. Her father is a, a diplomat, but her mother is a, an artist. And I think Imogen, Imogen's living in this difficult time for a, a woman of, of, her, of her type because she, she wants something. She's been educated enough to know that she wants more of the world. And she, if she wanted to get an artistic education, it would have been fine with her parents, you know, to study music or English. But she wants to be involved in the world and really have some part in it. And that is something that gives her, um, well, it causes her trouble. And, sh- and her, her sort of independence is, is something that's both attractive to Ashley and also something that I, makes her sort of unpredictable. Uh, over the course of the novel, she's forced to make difficult decisions. And I think part of what really fascinated me about this was you know, people who are 19 or 20 years old in, in World War One having to make life and death decisions within matters of weeks and having to deal with those consequences. But for Imogen, who's so emotional and so impulse-driven, it's, it's even more difficult. One of the things I think that makes this novel really work, too, is the way you cut back and forth between Tristan in the present day and Ashley and, and Imogen in the past. And so there's these nice like little parallels that we set up as readers. And it makes the reading experience really rich as we contemplate those echoes between the characters because Tristan feels quite a bit like Ashley as well. Right. I mean, I was I think I was trying to sort of get at this thing that was bothering me the whole time I was writing this book and which had been bothering me for a long time, which is how do you compare your life to this sweeping idea of history? And that is what Tristan's having to do all the time. I mean, we can spend all our time reading about Everest or about Shackleton or about whatever it is that interests us. And then at the end of the day, we have to you know sit down and, and live the life that we have. And, and I think Tristan, while he's discovering about this 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 amazing story, is, is kind of looking at his own life and thinking, well, you know, what's so what do I have that measures up to this? 
And when he meets Marie, who's a, 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 you know, sort of a romantic figure, but then also, you know, she's very much living in this world and is actually kind of, she's divorced and she's sort of a realist. Tristan doesn't really know whether to keep chasing this idea he has and whether to, or whether to choose his own life. And so there's a sort of parallel between the stories, which I don't even know whether it was deliberate or not. And I think it turns out differently, partly because, well, it's they're in different periods and the choices that Tristan has or in a way, you know, better, which I think, or easier, which I think is more representative of our lives in this moment, which is that we live in in moments of, I don't know, more choice. I had the choice to go to Europe. I had the choice to choose what I wanted to do. And Ashley, for the fact that he's he's wealthier, that Imogen is, you know, you know, comparatively from a good family, had pretty limited choices, and those choices were really prescribed by circumstances, and especially the war. And so I think, um, sort of the 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 push and pull between these two stories kind of um, contrast the periods, but I'm also trying to maybe show how history doesn't necessarily feel like history while you're living it. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that, that Ashley may be on Everest or at the sum, um, what he's really thinking about or is his own mythology, and, and that mythology is really Imogen. Justin, will you read to me from the book? Sure. I go to the next page and read to the end. You are the source and measure of all good things. Even in a pit so wretched as this, I know my happiness comes from you. When we come back into the dugout, after eighteen hours crawling in frozen mud, and we have a cup of steaming tea and a tin of bully beef, I know what pleasure there is comes from you. When at midnight watch, the shelling suddenly ceases, for no more reason than it ever started, and the sky is incandescent with streaming flares, then I see some signature of the divine, and knowing there is no God, I know that signature is yours. I did not need to see such cruelty as I have to know how I loved you, nor to know how rare and fragile the time we shared was. But I have learnt something. We have words for places of utter bliss and utter agony. We call them heaven and hell, and place them in some distant domain, far beyond death. But this is mistaken. These are names we give to things that exist in this world and only here, and I have seen them share the same field. Image and I care nothing for future salvation, nor for the prizes of this stumbling world. You were the wise one, wise to understand what we were when I hardly knew myself, wiser still to weep when I left, knowing the price we paid for my conceit. If this war tests men as men have never been tested, I survive only through you. And when we stand again, together, beneath the arch at All Saints, I shall have the only salvation I desire. Yours ever, Ashley. At one point, Ashley is looking at one of the sagas, and there's a quote about the sagas. And and I'm wondering, did that come from a real book, or did you make that up? (laughs) I I think it was a a combination of reading stuff about them and making it up, yeah. When you said that history doesn't feel like history when we're living it, as Tristan chases Ashley's story— we're just as interested in Tristan's story, which is unfolding in our world, which gives us a perspective on our own lives. Right. I mean, otherwise, I mean, I didn't want to write a, a book where if if the whole point of it was just that, that you know, 1924 was way more exciting than 2014. I mean, I don't even know. There's no point in writing a book like that because I don't even think it's true. But, I mean, being a person whose aesthetic tastes run towards that period, I had to sort of find the parallels. And, and I think, you know, the, what the book, hopefully does is, is give you readers and it gave me a better, a closer engagement with the past um, and with all these things that were around around us. I mean, 
I could choose to still live my life looking at very trivial things, or or I could choose to like start. Yeah, you start reading about the, the Icelandic sagas. I mean, this this book is sort of a, a garage sale of all the things that interested me, and and by putting them in the book, I I started to feel like, yeah, the world that around us is rich with fascinating art and history and relics of all the things that have happened on the earth. And if you start paying attention to them, you could you can never be bored. You can never exhaust the the things that have happened. As you were putting this book together and doing the research, did you keep separate journals for the research that you drew from? And were there are, are there books that essentially are your cliff notes for this book? And then did they go in and out? Um, no, actually, not not so separate. I mean, partly because it all got mixed up. I mean, that's that's probably. It shows in the book itself that it all got mixed up. I, I had a, you know, it's almost like a commonplace book of, of, of things which would be, you know, quotations from war poets or climbers mixed up with, you know, my own diary about being depressed when I was writing it in Berlin <laughs> mixed up with, uh, mixed up with uh, the actual first drafts of the book since I wrote it all longhand in notebooks. You know, the, the very chapter is mixed up with a lot of citations with page numbers in the books that I was reading. So no, I'm, I tried to organize it all sort of on computers and stuff. But in the end, most of the stuff would get written uh, sort of free form, except for the there were a few chapters that were so, I felt so much pressure to get them right that I, I, I kind of almost did like a research paper type thing. W- with the war chapters, I was very nervous about getting everything perfect. And I, I when I finally sat down, I, I had stacks of books and notes all around me because I wanted it to unfold in a very particular way. One of the, the the great pleasures of this book is the way that you achieve the kind of the cinematic cutting between the past and the present. And what's nice is is that your language seems really rich in all in, on on both sides and appropriate for each uh, period. So I'd like you to talk about keeping your language between the periods subtly different, but with enough of the same kind of flow to. Not like not be a, a jagged uh, experience <laughs> for the reader, <laughs> right? Well, I th- I think part of the language was you know I mean of course style just you don't you can't necessarily uh, determine your own style. It's a consequence of the stuff you read. So my reading tastes run both towards all the way you know from the from the very British and I, I love Virginia Woolf for instance and I love I love Hemingway and so I can kind of go in either direction. But the voices of the characters, of course, had to be derived from from history. Um, and so I think some of the narrative style was based on the actual sources. You know, the the, the way that these people talked, which I, I tried to learn, it was a real language. You know, I'd take notes of, of their speech. I think in a way it kind of influenced the actual style of the writing. The, the historical parts of the book are all written in the third person. And uh, Tristan's story is all written in the first person. But they're both written in the present the whole way through, pretty much. So I was trying, in, on some level, I think, not to differentiate too much between the past and present. I didn't want the past to feel any less immediate. But I also made a pretty deliberate effort on the case of Tristan. At one point, I even did a whole revision where I just tried to make him sound more American because I felt like the British the British parts had sort of devolved into this mid-Atlantic, almost like Hollywood in the 50s thing where it was sort of half British or something because I, I'm American, but of course, I, I've been weaving under the shadow of this stuff and I somewhat absorb its aesthetics. So I went back and I tried to make Tristan a little bit more terse and more direct and more American and young. 
I actually read my own notebooks, which was sort of embarrassing from when I was <laughs> 23 years old or whatever, um, traveling through Europe. And I tried to copy his style. Not only there's a few parts where you actually get to see his notebooks in the book, but also in his, the way that he would see things. And so so his his style is sort of different. But of course, in a way, it's still like the style of the book because he's also interested in, in this in this, the past. And so he's going to copy it a bit. This book is so interesting to me, too, because it kind of evades description, evades genre. It's a bunch of different things put together that doesn't feel like a bunch of things put together. And when you set out to to write this, did you have a like a maybe I'm going to write a book about climbing in the, in the 20s? <laughs> no. Or, <laughs> no. In, in fact, I don't. Yeah, I don't really. I get surprised all the time by the, the categorizations. I, I've seen it called a thriller, which is, I find astonishing. But I, then again, I, I don't even know if I know what a thriller is. I don't think it's a historical novel, really. I think of a proper historical novel as being those, uh, you know, Patrick O'Brien or something where it's, where it's really based on a, a specific knowledge of, of 18th century British warfare or whatever, uh, naval warfare, something very specific. And this book is, well, I, I you know, made, went to great effort to try to make it accurate. That's not really, it wasn't my goal strictly to recreate the past. Or, you know, uh, some people think, you know, it's a mystery. In a way, it really is a mystery because I would say the book's all about mystery. But at the same time, I don't think it follows the conventions of the mystery genre. So, but I, again, I don't really, the only mystery stuff I read is Sherlock Holmes, which isn't exactly <laughs> typical mystery stuff. So, I, 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 yeah, I, I think, I think there wasn't, there was certainly no deliberate effort to, to try to, to try to put it in a genre. And if I think if there was a genre that I felt like, you know, I was doing it all, it was just a quest story. But like an old quest story, not anything specific, but just, you know, sort of medieval quest stories of knights going off in search of something or or, or the epics or Homer or something. Not I'm not in any pretentious way, but just, you know, an old fashioned adventure story, I guess. But um, maybe because that idea is sort of vague, I just approached it in, in the way that that I wanted to. But I had I've actually really not read any sort of books like this, which have a character searching for the past or something. So I, I, I kind of think I'm. I, sort of made it up and hoped it turned out okay. It's also, to me, I think speaks, and we've talked about this earlier, about the, just the power of story in our lives and the power that the story of Ashley exerts on Tristan and the way they both exert a power on the reader, I think is, a, is makes this a, a book that makes you think not just about what you're reading, but how you read and about reading itself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm what I'm really going for is storytelling. In the end, all I'm trying to do is just tell the most powerful, engaging story that I can. And I think in the book you see, well, like I, I was saying before, I think it's the the personal mythologies that really matter. And what you see is that the way that Ashley sort of develops this mythology. Ashley and Imogen, you know, every love story in a way is its own story. It's a personal mythology that you tell yourself about how you met. And, you know, in this case, Ashley and Imogen, there's six days. that becomes this thing. Everybody's got a story they tell themselves about their lives. and And then... So Ashley and Imogen are telling themselves this story for, for years and years, even after they haven't seen each other. And Tristan sort of discovers this story. And, of course, I think he, he sort of internalizes it. But then he has to figure out, well, well what's my story? Now, uh, are you working on a new novel? Yes, I am working on a new novel. But uh, <laughs> it's, you know, with, a, with books this big, you know, like uh, it's a long process. And, and especially also with I liked the feeling with this book of, you know, you know what the story is, where it's going in the beginning. And, you know, the reader hopefully wants to, f- to follow it. And I'm trying to find not just a setting or even characters, because I, f- I think I can do that. 
but something that that that's going somewhere from the beginning. Um, but uh, the book that I'm planning right now is uh, also a historical, well, a historically set book set in the, the 1920s and 1930s because I'm fascinated by this period and Paris and Berlin and sort of the expat world and art and, you know, also, of course, p- political instability between the wars and all these things and that there will probably be some of the same stuff that's in here in terms of kind of a mixture of, of uh, I don't know, adventure and... Um, I don't know, passion or things like that. But but again, it's 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 early days, so we'll see. Justin Goh's first novel is The Steady Running of the Hour. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Thank you. It was a huge pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.